0: You're listening to episode 121 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones.
1: And I'm Steph McKenna.
0: And we are joined by Flo Reynolds. Welcome back. Hi. So it's the 5th of November 2020 here in Norwich as the episode's going out. It's been a very interesting week, but let's not get into that. Um, (laughs) Later on in the pod, we have a special conversation from the Norwich Crime Writing Festival featuring Ayinkan Braithwaite. But before we get to that, Flo, you're here to tell us about the latest book club.
1: I am, yeah. Thanks so much for having me back on the podcast, Simon and Steph. So our next book club book, um, which we're going to be reading throughout November, December and through into January a bit as well, because uh, Christmas is a funny time for reading, in my experience. Um, We're going to be reading Our Place which is a book by Mark Cocker, who is just one of the foremost nature writers um, at work in the UK. He's a multi-award winning writer um, of creative nonfiction and lots of his books have been bestsellers. People might have uh, heard of or, or already read Crow Country, Claxton and Our Place is Mark's book from a couple of years ago, published in 2018. And it's also the first work of nonfiction that we're going to be reading for the book club. So it should be a really exciting time and something different again from what we've read so far together.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. So last time you were reading Rendang by Will Harris, which was our first venture into poetry. How did that go?
1: Yeah, it was so interesting actually to talk about Rendang with readers because I think it's a really surprising book in lots of ways. And yeah, it was definitely one that got us all sort of, I, th- I think everybody found challenging in the best possible way um, mm-hmm. from my conversations with other readers. There's so much to talk about in this book.
0: Yes. And we'll have Will come into the podcast very soon. Um, so yeah, give us the, the quick rundown on, on why people should jump on board with Mark Cocker's book.
1: Yeah. So Our Place is a book that I'm really well, I'm always really excited to share books with readers because it's something I love to do. But Our Place, I think, is going to be a really interesting one to talk about together. As I say, it is our first book of nonfiction. And because of that, it's it's it offers us a lot of ways in together. So it's a book that has some beautiful nature writing in it. Um, Mark Cocker talks about uh, his his piece of land in Claxton, which is um, here in, in Norfolk, Um, And he has a real intimacy with that piece of land. He writes about it in this beautiful nature writing, inimitable style, actually. I think he's one of the sort of foremost people doing nature writing at the moment. But at the same time, the book is about the destruction of nature. It's about the history of our institutions and policies and all of the, the ways that nature is protected in the UK, And how those came to be and actually how even though um, here in the UK we we pride ourselves on thinking of ourselves as nature lovers, thousands and millions of people across the country who feel really strongly that nature should be conserved, we're still seeing its destruction. Um, Nature is dying in the UK. And um, Mark's book is so interesting because it combines all of these things together and What he's trying to do is a kind of nature writing that, yes, is attuned to the beauties and the surprises of nature and close observation of nature. But it's also practically about what we can do to reverse the decline in all these species. So, yes, lots for us to talk about. And as I say, there is also beautiful, intimately observed writing to thrill us as we make our way through what can at some points in the book makes for challenging reading fantastic yeah that was quite the pitch i'm looking forward to reading it and there's lots of ways for people to get involved with the book club isn't there yeah totally so we've already kicked off the discussion on discord um over on our discord community which is free to join and anybody can come and chat about books and writing and reading with us on there um, as usual, we'll be posting some blog posts, which will have some suggested questions for people who might be reading the book and want to discuss it with friends or family, or just think about it in your own time. Um, and I'll be posting a writing exercise as well, and some more recommended reads. For if you've really enjoyed our place, um, you can find some other books on there as well to to whet your appetite. But yeah, we'll also be holding our discussion sessions, and at the moment, those are all taking place over Zoom.
0: So yeah, do go grab a copy of Book either from your library or local bookshop. Uh, I believe the Book Hive in Norwich have some offer as well.
1: Yeah, they do. So, our friends at the Book Hive, um, fantastic independent bookshop in Norwich, are offering 10% off to uh, members of the book club um, and people who would like to join us. and um, For when you buy our place, and um, you can get 10% off the book at the Book Hive. So, thank you very much to them.
0: Fantastic. Well, I look forward to meeting lots of people over on Discord to discuss the book. So, on the podcast today, we are travelling back to noiridge 2020, which took place in September, and this is a wonderful conversation between Ayinkan Braithwaite and Femi Cody about Ayinkan's work. Flo, were you, you you presented it, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I did. I absolutely loved this event. Um, Ayinkan is the author of My Sister, the Serial Killer, which is one of yeah, just a really addictive crime book and um, it was a real pleasure to work with Femi as well, whose novel is coming out in early 2021 and I can't wait to read it. So yeah, just the dream team really.
0: You can also find a video version of this over on our YouTube channel. Let's hand over to Femi and Oyinkan.
2: Hi, how are you? I'm Femi, thank you for joining us today and I'm so excited to be talking to Oyinkan today. Um, when you I don't want to go too much into who I am, what I am I really am so excited to meet you finally Albert thank on Zoom uh, We've been having a conversation on WhatsApp over the, over the past week since we knew this was going to happen So I'm so excited to finally see you uh, Thank you for joining me today um as you know I'm a bit excited and a bit nervous about this so you've tried to calm me down you told me that I should just ask anything I want to know so what I want to start off with is just maybe if you can just tell me that really wants to get to know you just a bit about yourself not as unikon the author but just unikon the person you know where you stay where you're from and things like that
3: okay well I'm from uh I'm in Lagos right now. I am in Lagos, Nigeria. Um, and I guess we're sort of coming out of the strict lockdown measures bit by bit. Um, and I'm from uh Nigeria as well. Um also I'm also British. I gosh, what <laughs> this is <so> <laughs> I put you on the spot I'm already going blank. I'm like, okay, I, I said the places I'm from. Um okay. so. <laughs> okay I love anime that's one of the uh-huh. things I don't know that's like my most defining these days it sounds like it's my most defining feature because every opportunity I'm like I'm an anime fan I'm a huge fan of anime <laughs> in fact these days it's one of the only things I can um watch because the world is so even though I guess there's some really dark anime but even the really dark anime I've kind of shied away from like mm-hmm. um so I watch a lot of anime consume a lot of anime um gosh
2: what
3: else is there this
2: is hard i know it's fine i'm I'm excited yeah i mean i am actually already excited about the idea of being um very much a fan of anime uh because it really tells a lot you know i I, there was a time i was talking to somebody and he said that i'm very addicted to cbb's I was like, what? <laughs> you know, CBBs. And it's like, no, you know, you just get back from home from a hard day's work and then you just sit down and just watch
3: didn't CBBs. Did he have kids? Or, he didn't or have he kids. That.
2: He just started just, that by himself. <laughs> yeah, it was like some kind of a therapy for him to unwind at yeah. the end of the day. Mm-hmm. But no, I that. Yeah, and I think what you just said really, really helps me to say great into what I really wanted to start a conversation with, which is that where the world is right now. You know, the whole COVID nineteen and all that, and how is that affecting your state of mind, your 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 sense of being, and how you see the world. You know, has I, 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 does the veil that you have, or the lens through which you see people and the world, has it changed much, or is it the same, or are people being exactly who you always thought they were? During this time of crisis, well, I don't know. I just want to get your opinion there.
3: Um, well, as for my state of mind, one of the things I've re- realized is that it's really hard for me to consume long, like long works of fiction. So I've mm-hmm. been reading a lot of shorts and novellas. For some reason, I can't focus enough to be like I'm reading this from beginning to end. Um, I know there's a lot going on and you know, it's just, it's a struggle for me. But as for how I see people, I don't think that's really changed. One of the things I think um, about as a writer is what people do when they're, one of the things that fascinate me is kind of seeing what people do when they're between a rock and a hard place, when they're pushed, Um, into a corner and kind of, and and that's kind of what I'm interested in when I'm creating characters. Like what would they do if you put them in these extreme circumstances? Um, Mm -hmm. So I don't think people have surprised me. If anything, like whenever I see, I I, I note it more when I see people doing extreme acts of kindness. Cause for me, that's Mm -hmm. more interesting. That's more notable. Um, mm-hmm. than when people do extreme acts of cruelty you know mm-hmm.
2: um, so yeah I don't know that's kind of where I'm no going. that's interesting I think for me what I, what I, what the time has actually taught me is that I have very little patience for conspiracy theories you know mm-hmm. so I tend to like I, I, I would read really kind of like oh my god you really think this you know and, and I think the season has actually brought that up, but that also gets to the issue of conflicts. You know, a, a very good friend of mine once defined conflicts in drama as desire versus danger. You know, and when you just talk mm. about the issue of, you know, between a rock and a hard place, I'm just thinking to myself, how does that, how does that concept of between the rock and a hard place, how does it start as a theme for you you as a writer when you're creating these characters? What kind of hard hard and rock place comes to your mind first kind of thing? I guess it just, it's just
3: something I keep coming back to. I think for me, it's about relationship most of the time. You know, it's about relationship and, You know the break when a relationship has broken down or um, betrayal. You know what forces somebody to betray? What forces somebody to betray their sister or their their husband? Or what forces even something like um, cheating? What what, you know as as sort of uh, commonplace as that is. Mm -hmm. What drives a person to do that? So this is what it is, I think, for me most of the time. How a person represents themselves versus who they actually are when Mm -hmm. things, you know... uh, go sideways yeah mm-hmm. when things go sideways who are they really and I think that's even again coming back to the uh, the pandemic I think you know it's funny because some people may have found themselves doing things that a year ago they would have said I would never do that this is not me mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and even as our journey you know from childhood to adulthood mm-hmm. there's some things 10 years ago I said I'd never say that or I'd never do this particular thing and then you do it and you're like Mm you know um so
2: yeah that's kind of yeah so yeah so in a sense the rock and a hard place is relative to character at the end of the day you know because what's a what's a rock and a hard place for me within a relationship my non-negotiables are different from the next person and that Mm -hmm. that's a very fascinating thing especially when we now take it to my sister the serial killer because this is a rock and a hard place that a lot of people would say I can't relate to that. You know, my sister is not a, a serial killer. But what I loved about the book, what I really, really, really enjoyed about the book, was this the sense of what if it was me? What choices would I make? You know, what if I was I found myself in this this untenable situation? And I think you did it so beautifully without judgment without judgment. And I thought that was just so beautiful. And so that's why I want to start with that, that the, my series, this, my sister, The Serial Killer is the best thing I've read in a very, very long time. It was, it was quick. Um, I, I just stayed up all night and I just read it, you know, and all that. And it was a very, very simple prose, very, very accessible prose. And I just wanted to know was that the intention? Did you start off saying, I just want to write something simple or I just want to create a character that is um, that is between this rock and a hard place and then just flow with it? Do you, how, how did it come to you in a sense?
3: Okay, well, generally speaking, I think that... Um I don't know I, okay i was going to say i was going to say that i think i'm more of a storyteller than i am necessarily a writer but that's not strictly true because words fascinate me you know and like not words by themselves but words how you arrange them to you know because you can arrange the same five words probably in different ways and uh and it will trigger different emotions or mm-hmm. i hope i'm making sense. You but, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. um, but when I say I think I'm more of a storyteller is that at the heart when I'm writing it's about the it's for me it's really about the engagement value you know mm-hmm. am I is it engaging me from start to finish because if it's not mm-hmm. then you know there's almost no point in the work at all mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it's a struggle for me to keep on writing something that's you know that's dragging um so mm-hmm. I think that's my first thing when I was writing my sister the serial I wrote my sister the serial for myself and I know that sounds like maybe I'm saying I tricked myself but I didn't I actually wrote it with the intention that you know um it would help me come out of the writer's block that I was experiencing at the time. So I didn't mm-hmm. write it with the intention that I would send it to an agent. I didn't write it with the intention that, you know, lots of people would be able to access it. it and when I wrote the first version of My Sister's Circle, which was a novella, it was half the size it is now, I self-published it and then, um, and then I did a few little Instagram posts about it and, and that was it because, again, I wasn't even trying to push the work um, like you know that much, um, so I think that 's what really gave me i mean I, I almost feel like when I think about it, I feel as if um, you know my sister 's serial killer will be will always be special to me because i 'm never going to get that again that freedom to you know knowing that oh nobody is going to see this or you know and and to be free to try whatever I wanted to try, for example um the fact that, you know, like chapter one is just two sentences, that's something I would not have done if I thought I was going to send it to an agent eventually, mm-hmm. you know, because I thought oh, if nobody, I would have thought nobody would buy into that. You know, mm-hmm. why would anybody, why would your first chapter, and it wasn't really something I had seen, like you see kind of <laughs> prologues there are many, um, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, and, and it's not even just my first chapter. There, I have other chapters that are just, you know, a paragraph here.
2: Yeah, yeah, um, that's true. Mm-hmm.
3: So, so yeah, it did give me a kind of freedom to to do whatever I felt I wanted to do.
2: Yeah. I, I think I understand that freedom and, and it, it was just, it's just something that s- happened to me when I, the very first time I got paid for mm. writing and, the next time, just to write an email was like this <laughs> pressure <laughs> that I felt and yeah. I, I kept on saying but what, where's, where, is it, where is this coming from? And I realized that suddenly it just seemed as if I was on display um, and, and I can understand the pressure. But what really excites me about what you're saying is really the idea that you're more of a storyteller than a writer. And I, I, I do really, really identify with that a lot because sometimes I think maybe, especially when you do an Emmy in creative writing and then you read all of those really great writers um, who are very adept at mixing the words and putting it together and to evoke the right emotions. And then you think about the books that you started out with, you know, the Mills and Booms, the James Hadley Chases uh, and all of that. And you realize that, you didn't like them because they were good writers. You liked them because they were great stories, you know, in a sense. Mm. So I, I, I really identify with that. But I think with that said, I also want to find out like those early influences that made you feel that you were a storyteller, that made you feel as if you wanted to tell stories just like this. You know, do you, do you want to give me an idea? Um.
3: Gosh, I don't know what particular book made me think that I want to be a writer. I think I was just a voracious reader. Um, and mm. at some point, I just thought this is what I'm meant to do. You know, I read a lot of classics. My favorite book in the whole world is still Jane Eyre. I read that when I was about 10. And my love for it has not waned in any in any way, shape, or form. So um, people are kind of surprised sometimes when I say Jane Eyre because I guess because it's the type of story, I, I, the sto- kind of stories I write, but it is, you know, um, and I suppose, I don't know, I read a lot. I read a lot in the classics. Mm-hmm. Um, the, one book that I think might have been a kind of influence on my sister's serial killer was, um, was it Great Expectations? Um, mm-hmm. You know, that had um, Estella, you know, who was groomed to basically be a heartbreaker. Like, I feel like mm-hmm. she's, she's almost like a white, mm-hmm. less murderous version of Ayala somewhat. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, less murderous, less cookie version mm-hmm. of Ayala, but um, the intention was the same that her, her um, what's the word? What's the word for, give <laughs> the <for> words now. <laughs> Go if, on. If you're the, because Estella was the ward, so mm-hmm. trying to think what um
2: the mentor the
3: groomer <laughs> well let's call it I can't for now. Remember. I can't, I can't, yeah promise. i can't remember but anyway the woman who was bringing well, her on um you know her heart she had been left at the um, at the altar, at the altar. Um, mm-hmm. her heart had been broken and you know she basically wore her wedding dress for the rest of her life this is abisham that, Miss Havisham. There we go. But I don't yeah. know what her her <laughs> title would have been for Estella. Anyway, yeah. Miss Havisham. Yeah. You know, she she wore uh, the, the wedding dress pretty much her entire life, and um, she kind of cultivated this bitterness and this anger, and mm-hmm. you know, passed it on to Estella. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I think there was something that resonated. Like the story was so powerful to me and so dark when I was, you know, I read a lot of dark stuff now that I think about it, but it resonated with me and I actually feel like sometimes when I think about it, I'm like, I think that influenced My Sister the Serial Killer in some way as
2: well. Yeah, which is very interesting. I mean, I've read quite a lot of literature or a lot of articles or reviews on My Sister the Serial Killer and the Jane Austen influence has been pointed out in one or two um articles but i've never heard of the great expectations one and and it's it's um, it's a it's a very weird analogy because it's supposed to be like really great literature very well written uh, and all that and it's strange again that you went straight to the story you were not talking about the style of writing i mean even the size of the book compared to the size of this one <laughs> you know actually shows that there's a difference but that your instinct is very much very storytelling, very character-driven. I'm putting those characters in very difficult uh, um, situations where they have and to make the thing choices.
3: About um, *Great Expectations*, I think is that they had, which to be honest is something that matters to me. My writing and um, married quite, and I think *Great Expectations* did quite well. Was the dialogue? Um, okay. You know, the dialogue was quite um, was memorable to my mm. mind. Did Jane Austen? influences i've never actually mentioned i think that's just people kind of i've never mentioned jane austen even though obviously i didn't her um to be honest i actually think i've watched more jane austen than i've actually read jane austen um mm-hmm. but you know i think people make the connection because of the whole marriage and yeah. you know it being mm-hmm. you know sleep women um mm-hmm. that sort of thing but it's not it's not it's not
2: a comparison I would have made on my own. On your own. Yeah. Okay. And let me talk about the process of the writing. So you, do you free flow? Do you plot? Do you carefully know exactly what's going to happen next? Or do you, I'm just curious as to that. Uh,
3: Most of the time I don't plan. I like to see where The first sentence and the sentence after that is going to take me. I kind of again, it makes it a little bit more fun for me because sometimes I realize that if I try to plot everything out, then I uh, then I lose interest because I feel like I've kind of told the story and there's not everything else just (laughs) work. Um, Mm -hmm. So most of the time I don't. But some some stories you kind of have to plan them. Um, Like I was, I did a a novella recently and I realized that. Um, at first, I thought I could get away with not knowing who the uh, perpetrator was, for lack of a better word. Um, and then I realized that, no, I actually have to know. I have to know pretty much right at the start. I can't get away with not with figuring out with the reader. Um, so that one, I kind of, I didn't plot the whole thing, but I had to know who did what. So I had to work that mm-hmm. out. Um, so yeah, I think mostly it depends on the story. Um, I did an interview recently and it had fantastic writers on there. And, you know, um, it was mentioned that if you're doing a story that's going to have, you know, the reveal like twists and you've got to plot those out because otherwise it will, you know, you'll be able to like poke a hole
2: in it and the whole thing will mm-hmm. fall apart. So. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very interesting because I, I remember when I finished um, school in crime fiction, I just said, saying, there's something they didn't tell us. And everybody goes, what did not they tell us? I'm like, did not tell us that the first thing you must figure out is how the crime was committed? That before you write your mm. first chapter, you must figure out how the crime was committed. and Speaking to what you just said now, I always just thought that this was something you could get away with and sort of like figure it out as you go along. And then you sort of like hit the spot. You're like, no, you really have to have figured how the crime was committed before moving on. And I think talking about yeah, crime... then because everything builds up to
3: it. So you can't, if yeah. you don't know anything, and you leave... For a lot of crime, you know, like I, I watch a lot of crime stuff and I realized the ones I like the most are the ones that even if I didn't figure out who did it, when they tell me, I'm like, oh, yes. You know, and everything adds up. But Add if you've up. not left me anything, you've not left me any herring bones here Red or whatever, crumbs, not left, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, you've not left me any breadcrumbs, then I, I don't have the same... emotional satisfaction at the end of it so yeah i agree with
2: you. yeah and that speaks to this whole idea of crime as a genre and i wanted to talk about it quickly with you in terms of um my sister serial killer is was was put in the crime genre but more and more it's being placed within the context of the literary genre i don't really know the difference but i just want to know what you think about that You know, when the writer sets out to tell a particular kind of story and then when he goes out into the world, it's seen as either something more or something else. What do you think?
3: Yeah, I mean, when I was writing Mrs. Circle, I didn't think of genre at all. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, even though I can see why it's placed in the crime genre, I can also see why sometimes it's not. Um, For one thing, you know, we just spoke about um, plotting crime and, you know, planning Mm -hmm. out the, you know, how the murder took place. Um, my sister isn't like that. You know, you know from the get-go who committed it and then the how it was committed is never really um mm-hmm. not there's not much focus placed on it. So essentially mm-hmm. it's not even about the murders, it's really about the relationship between these two women. Um mm-hmm. and for me it's really about Cordae's journey, you know, between mm-hmm. sort of being in denial and then accepting, you know who her sister is and what her role in Mm. that whole uh, situation is. Um, Mm. So I think that's why it straddles it, because if you're Mm. looking for pure crime, again, you're not going to be satisfied because that's not what My Sister's Serial Killer is going to give you. Um, I've Mm. even seen some readers be disappointed because they thought there would be more gore, because obviously it's called My Sister's (laughs) Serial Killer, and then they get there and they realize there's actually very little...
2: <laughs> yeah mm-hmm.
3: so again for me it's more about that story is more about relationship than anything mm-hmm. else you know the mm-hmm. the murders are almost a side note in like a bigger sort of
2: yeah uh, context story. yeah I agree with you and I, I, I think for me, I, I, I think that's one of the things that I've always sort of like wondered about: what, what you know, what is literary and what is crime and what is genre. And I love the fact that when you, when you, in terms of your process, starts to write, you're not thinking about a genre; you just want to tell a story. And I think that's where one should just always start for to be authentic to the story. And now let's talk about the editing process. Okay, so I'm just editing my finished editing my book now. It was a painful experience uh, because I didn't know anything about the publishing process until now. And my background was always in film. And so what I wanted to find out from you is that editing this beautifully already passed book, how was it? How did you feel? Can you just, and and this is something that a lot of the writers that I've spoken to uh, want to ask you, you know what was the editing process like what was the experience like and did you learn anything and will it shape the next story or your approach to the next story
0: um i
3: think i mean to be honest the editing process for me was really smooth um mm. i was working with two editors at once because um we were bringing out the uk and the us uh, about the same time so i was working with one uk editor one us editor so it was the three of us three different time zones and um, it could have been really stressful. But I think we were all very patient with one another. And and like you said, my writing is quite sparse. So most of the time, what they're asking me to do isn't so much take things out. They're encouraging me to flesh things out. Um, okay. So, you know, more than anything, they'll be like, oh, you've not told us enough about this. or you've not told us enough about that, which, you mm-hmm. know, I I know that I'm, I know that's something I do because a lot of the time I'm like, oh, the reader gets it. They know. <laughs> <laughs> they know. They can fill in the blanks. They're like, no, uh-huh. we, just, we just need a little bit more. Um, uh-huh. So, yeah, because I, I think for me, less is always more in my mind. Uh-huh. You know, I, I write a sentence and I'm like, oh, they, can re- they, they get it. But sometimes uh-huh. you do need to, um, you do need to, you know, and especially like I'm terrible when it comes to descri- setting you know, Mm -hmm. if I could put my characters in a vacuum and just have (laughs) them talk to one another, that would be my preferred way to go. Mm -hmm. Um, So I never Mm -hmm. really want to place them anywhere. I've had some people ask me like, oh, you know, yes, it was in Lagos and we enjoyed that, but it could have been anywhere. You know, did you Mm -hmm. do that intentionally? No, I didn't do it intentionally because I'm lazy with description. (laughs) So that's why it feels like it could be anywhere because, you know, I don't, I don't, expand she a lot on studying. Mm. that's not my priority. is always dialogue and um you know just a general tone of the oh, piece yeah. um
2: yeah.
3: and i suppose also maybe it's because i you know i, I wrote poetry for you know years and years and years um, mm-hmm. not so much anymore but i used to do a lot of poetry and spoken word so i think that mm-hmm. also teaches you and i was i used to love doing the um forms like sonnets and sestinas and villanelles and those kind of train you to be very Mm -hmm. specific about Mm -hmm. your word choice because Mm -hmm. you don't have a lot of room to waffle or you know so Mm -hmm. everything you do with intention and I think that's something I've carried over to my prose. but um, Mm -hmm. again to answer your question about whether editing was difficult um, you know I've also worked as an assistant editor so Um, Mm -hmm. I can edit my work fairly Mm -hmm. well, even before people kind of join, Mm
2: -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. what I've done. Mm -hmm. That's great. And I think you've said so many things that is leading to the next question, and that is this idea of cultural context. You know, um, again, I'm excited to ask this question because it was something that I went through so many workshops in school whereby I would write and the only Nigerian in the class. And they would say, we don't get it. We, we, we don't know what you're talking about. And I'd be like, yeah, but if I explain it to you, then I'm not telling the story. Then I'm, I'm, I'm doing a travelogue or I'm doing something else entirely. And, and I, I, I was very, very fascinated about how you were so confidently alluding to several cultural contexts um, in terms of the, the, the names of the food, the bus stops, the, the you know, I, I, I mean, I, I cannot forget the part where you talked about um, Corridi being stopped by LASMA. And I kept on waiting for the time where you're going to explain what LASMA is, and you didn't. And I was like, I just stomped up in the air, I was like, yes, she did it, you know. And so what I wanted to know is, what kind of pushback did you get you know when you when you when you give it to your editors for instance to say oh explain this what, what does this really mean and how did you also push back to say that's that's how it is and I I, I hope I make sense in terms of what I'm asking yeah no you in do of-
3: um okay. <laughs> to be honest I don't think I got a lot of pushback I think that um I don't know I feel like the story tells you where it's you know I don't, I don't know I, I didn't really get that much pushback um, um, partly because I, like the writers you know who's, who've come before us, a lot of them have fought those battles um, mm-hmm. you know um, I remember when I was uh, maybe a few let's say a few years before my sister came out and I was writing another piece, a novel or something, and my brother, who's 13 years younger than me, would come in and he would look, he would maybe read like four sentences and he would be like, well, is this going to appeal to a global market? Um, (laughs) Like, get out of my room now. Um... (laughs) But I think, I think generally, I just try to be true to myself. I don't even feel like I try to be true to Nigeria as a whole. Mm-hmm. I try to be true to who I am. Um, mm-hmm. And when my, um, uh, when my editors came on board, you know, they, I think they even encouraged me sort of, because like I said, there was a lot of fleshing out to be done. And they mm-hmm. encouraged me, you know, like, look, this is, this is a different time now. Be free, um, mm-hmm. and was actually in the previous draft. There's a sentence in the in my sister's serial killer that's in Yoruba that I don't translate at all. Um, a few sentences um, in the chapter with um, when uh, the well, I don't know if this is well, it's not spoiler. I don't think it's spoiler. I don't know. But when <laughs> the father brings a mistress yeah. into the Her house yeah. and the mother says, you know, she says something, the Yeah. and I didn't translate it. And nobody said, I think I might've been like, I don't want to translate this. And nobody said anything. And you know what? I, my, I've my one, i come across readers who've had an issue with the fact that I didn't translate it. And I, I, I feel like, you know what? Two things I actually feel. Two, there are two things. One, mm-hmm. I've read books you know maybe sentences in French and I've had to go to Google and Google it that's one two, um, and I've not had an issue with it two um, why I thought I could get away with that is because again maybe because I'm always my own is always less is more um, so I thought I could get away with it because I was like look even if you don't understand what this woman is saying you understand what she's saying because the emotion of the scene what she's going through is so tragic and so horrible that you don't need you know if you saw a woman screaming in the street and her hair when well, she's pulling her hair and her her wrapper, or whatever is falling mm-hmm. off you know what this woman is saying even though you don't know what she's saying you know yeah. so I, for me it adds to it it doesn't take away from it i don't need to understand to understand mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. it, again because i I'm a big, less is more person. I don't like, you know, you spoke about the last one. I don't like how clunky things get when you start saying, and last is, you know, <laughs> and you now have to start explaining yeah. your last yeah. Like for me, that takes mm-hmm. away from the story. It slows things down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and if you're really curious, again, you will get that he's some kind of police official. But if you are really curious... Yeah. Okay, Google is your friend. But you don't need to know exactly <laughs> what last mass stands for in order to get what you need to get, get from that scene. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. and so... I think that is really uh, sorry, I think that's really what speaks to the idea of setting. I actually think that you you actually set up your setting so beautifully because they're integral mm-hmm. to the action. You know, they that's what I l- Love about it. I could, I, I, maybe because I'm Nigerian, but I could see the road, I could see the last night, I could smell the sweat, I could smell it. But there were information that were given relevant to the character and to the action and to the conflict in that setting. So you're not describing the size of a window uh, simply because you want to talk about how beautiful the house is, but we, we get a very yeah. strong sense. Of where the characters are, and um, I, 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 I can see the kitchen when the house girl is cooking because you relate the action of the house girl to the specific thing she's but pointing. You,
3: think, you know the thing about that. What you're
2: saying is actually completely true because I think
3: it's something else that again, because I said I don't like to describe a room. What I think I am conscious of as a writer is that. You know, you talked about it being integral to the character. When you enter a room, in my opinion, your prejudices, your background, your your mood affect what it is about that room that you remember when you leave. It's you're not going to remember the whole thing. You're going to be like, oh my goodness, that's I've never, you know. Uh, seen a statue so bigger, maybe that's because you're into garish things or tacky things. I don't know if you're, I'm not saying you know, whatever. Like, let's say yeah. this, this gold and purple statue mm-hmm. or whatever, and that attracts your eye because that's what you're attracted to as an individual. Mm-hmm. You may not notice that, you know, above that, there's a mm-hmm.
2: uh.
3: Flower streaming down from the ceiling because you, or you, or maybe you'll Like, what's wrong with these people? Why are they putting flowers? <laughs> you know,
2: but you won't, yeah. it's not everything that's gonna, you know, attract you. Yeah, I, I really like that. And so maybe that speaks to the, because when I also read it, uh, I also felt the strong sense of like I was watching a movie and uh, some of the critics or the reviewers have said that it does read very much like a screenplay. And I don't know what you think about that, because I, I thought it was Sorry, a very...
3: Can you, can, you repeat, can you repeat that? I cut for a second. I didn't hear... You saw some of the critics. Okay. You no, no, well,
2: I don't want to say critics. I, I would say reviewers um, said that the, the, the book read very much like a screenplay, like a very visual. And I think that what they're trying to say is that it's a very visual story. Uh, and when we're talking about mm. the whole idea of the setting, for instance, and you're not setting it actually is, is beautiful because your less is more actually works because this whole idea eh, of seeing it through the eyes of the character in that scene comes across very clearly. So did you plan to write in the present tense? And did you, under, did you appreciate the fact that that present tense immediately puts people in the scene like a movie? Or is it something that came later? Actually, you know, funny enough, I
3: think a few months after My Sister Circular came out, I read an article that was talking about present tense versus past tense. And the article actually said that present tense lends itself to feeling like you're watching a movie because you're in the action as it's happening. Now, that's not something I thought about when, I mean, now I get it, but then when I was writing My Sister Circular, what actually happened was. Um, whenever I start a new writing project I try to do Mm -hmm. something I've not done before or I wouldn't usually do just because Mm -hmm. again another thing for me writing is to constantly grow I constantly improve my uh, writing muscles so I wrote Mm -hmm. in present tense because it was a tense I didn't usually write in Um, Mm -hmm. and that was it you know I just wanted to try it and see I mean Mm -hmm. now I'm quite used to it sometimes I do past tense sometimes I do present tense but my that was my intention. I was like, oh, I don't usually do present tense. And again, I, like I said, I wasn't writing this with the intention to have it published per se. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was free to try things. You know, again, mm-hmm. something else I tried that I didn't normally do was I didn't normally write in a uh, first person uh, mm-hmm. point of view. So mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to try to do this and I'm going to try and do it in 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 present tense and um, you know, and there were a couple of things that were on my mind and that was it for me. It was mm-hmm. it was me just trying out things I wouldn't normally
2: do. Strange that you spoke about present tense and first person. And I would just going to ask about point of view. You know, the whole idea of, I mean, everybody keeps asking, why did you choose corridor's point of view? Uh, why not through IELA's point of view? Why not through the mother's point of view? Why not multiple point of views? Um, I'm just curious, what do you have to say about that? Um, did you find Korede limiting um, or did, you find, did, it, it, did it free you uh, to explore other issues? I, I'm just curious. I, I, have, I have my ideas as to what it would have done for you if I was doing that, but I was very, just very curious as to whether it's a conscious choice. And if it's a conscious choice, what challenges did you experience while after making that choice and sticking to it?
3: Um, it was a conscious choice, I think um, I chose Cory Day for two reasons: one um, because partly because she's so obsessed with Ayola in her own way. Um, so she's almost telling Ayola's story more than she's telling her own story and that makes her almost kind of like a limited third-person point of view which Mm -hmm. was my way of helping myself back to where I was comfortable, um, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So Mm -hmm. you know she's almost not even an active character in that story. Things happen to her you know, more than, you know, she's not really a catalyst. I'll ask the catalyst and then mm-hmm. she responds, but mostly mm-hmm. she's reporting. She's observing and reporting almost. So mm-hmm. she's kind of like a limited third person in my mm-hmm. mind. <laughs> so that's how mm-hmm. I kind of got away from, um, cause I didn't want it to be, this is why I've always been afraid of first person point of view. I didn't want it to be, a, I did this and I did that. And then I felt <laughs> sad and then, you know, because just, because for I don't want to sound like I mean some people do it brilliantly, but there's sometimes when you read first person point of view, at least and even my attempts writing it in the past where it just sounds like a teenager writing a diary um, and uh-huh. I wanted to get as far away from that as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that's one reason why. Another reason why I chose her, um, well it, actually, in addition to the first point, there's another classic that kind of also gave me an idea that it would work, which was um, um, Wuthering Heights. Because Mm -hmm. even though Heathcliff and was it Catherine, I think she was Catherine, um, were sort of like the main characters in the story um, is being told by other people who are in the story, but who are not really a part of what's going on. So Mm -hmm. um, I knew it was possible. And then I think also it's Koride's story, at least the way I ended up writing it, it is Koride's story, it is her journey in mm-hmm. in, in a way. So, um, and something else I do need to try, which I think I have to try multiple points of views. I've not really um, engaged with that so much. Okay. Um, so that's something that I'll probably be like one day, I'll be like, oh, I'm gonna try this. But at the time it wasn't one of the things I wanted to try.
2: Uh, Yeah, good. Okay, Um, I think it's very interesting that you also spoke about Koride's journey. You know, um, uh, one of the things that we, the the school of thoughts that characters change and that um, I remember a very old professor of mine would always say things like um, you know a character has changed when what he needs is not what he wants, you know and it was just very fascinating to me and you, we spent so much time discussing how, how characters change and how, that's how you know that the do more or whatever the ending of the story, then you know okay, now you're satisfied with the ending but what I found out, what I sp- felt in My Sister the Serial Killer is like, it's a journey but it didn't end in a change, it, it, there was no change to, you know, it, we knew the sister was a serial killer at the beginning, she was not caught, she, she didn't change, she didn't go into therapy, and um Corredier's choices remain, remained consistent through, through it all. And so I was just curious, was that also something that's intentional? Do you feel that that's life? is that how do we change as people
3: um that's why sometimes i'm like it's not really a crime because you don't nothing changes as far as that as far as the crimes are concerned um however i disagree that Corey's choices remain the same because Mm -hmm. her actions are consistent but her emotional journey is different so at the start of the novel she's kind of like what's going on. Hey, my sister's a serial killer. Oh my goodness, what you know, what's what are we gonna do? How are we gonna we mustn't get caught? And by the end of it, she's basically like, you know, she's the sidekick. She's you know, she's become my last sidekick. She's she's yeah. at peace. She's she's cut off that part of herself that was fighting it. And she's mm-hmm. like, you know what? It looks like this is my life now, you know, and she's kind mm-hmm. of she's on board. Um, you know, because a lot of people were like, oh my goodness, why didn't she Um, end up with Mutar. why didn't she you know give him a chance or or whatever and um, then that was a choice she had but she made a choice I think prior to that this point where Ayala says you can't sit on the fence and I think that's what it is at the end she has Mm -hmm. made a choice it's just maybe Mm -hmm. not the choice that we would prefer that she made but up until then
2: she's been like you know Back and, Dilly forth. Darling. back and forth mm-hmm. that's interesting it's very very interesting i i i i was reading it and the times when i laughed out loud um i am sure you can guess i'm a cinephile i love watching movies and i, I quickly related it to a movie that i really really love which is um with meryl Streep and goldie hun it's it meryl Streep and goldie hun and it's called death oh
1: yeah, yeah,
2: I remember. You know, yeah, the darkness and the, the dialogue and, uh, and all that and how you're actually rooting for this women, in a sense. And I thought <laughs> it, was, it was just out, laugh out funny. And you have to talk, like, stop yourself. No, why are you laughing at this? This is really dark. Stop laughing, you know, kind of thing. So I had so much fun reading it. But I think within that same context, it's th- that whole idea of, you know, that whole um, Korede herself, I'm so fascinated by her because I'm, I'm personally in love with her. I really, really love her. And I see her as a statuesque, six-foot tall, dark, beautiful, you know. And I'm very fascinated as to what makes her think she is not attractive um, and, and the, the things that... Maybe how you see her in your head, is she really unattractive? See, i this question because this issue
3: has gotten me to be some trouble. sometimes. I think that, okay, so, you know, it's funny you say that you see her as this beautiful statuesque because I remember across a reader once who said, you know, I actually don't think Day is ugly. I think she just thinks she is. And I was like, okay, you know, that's interesting. And I've come, I, somebody else uh, messaged me the other day. I was very upset that I had made this unattractive character, dark-skinned. You know, and Mm. felt that I was adding to this uh, message, yes, that dark skinned women were not beautiful, to which I had to point her to my short story because I'm like, you know, if you've read, like, you will see that that's not the case. But I could understand what she was saying about, you know, my sister, Sirica. Now, I think that with that, with I Corriday's issue is compounded by many things, I think. One, you know, colorism, which is a mm-hmm. real thing in Nigeria. I think we're varying away from it, at least I hope we are um, now, but it's a very real thing. And in many ways, my sister circle, I represent things as I see them. Um, so, so that's one thing where, you know, some women were made to feel unattractive purely because they were, you know, dark-skinned. That might not necessarily mean that they were in fact unattractive mm-hmm. and even that stuff you know people are abuses in the eyes of the beholder so to some mm-hmm. people you might be unattractive to others you might be the best thing since life spread So that's one two um something else I, I i felt like i wanted to deal with writing my well not deal with that sounds like i was i had intention but, well, something, to, else yeah. I, <laughs> but something else that i covered kind of was you know and it was something that used to happen because i went to boarding school in nigeria for a year and it was something that used to happen where people would call, would number girls according to their physical um, body type, you know, Mm -hmm. and, you you know, just, there were so many things that happened, you know, when we were like 11, 12, 13, that I imagine, you know, there are things there that impact you, you know, in your early, because you're going through puberty then. So if you're told at that age that you are unattractive, that's going mm-hmm. to stay with you, no matter how you know much people say things you know that will stay with you it will you know and then the third thing I think that compounded Coryday's issue is the fact that she's got Ayala for a sister because mm-hmm. you know again people compare I've been compared my siblings, they've been compared with me, and I don't know to what purpose, but that's what people do they compare you know so even if you were good looking, if your sister is has, you know, model type beauty, you will always be the unattractive sister. So I think her issues
2: are kind of compounded by all those different things. Yeah, yeah. And also by her age, right? By her position in the family as being the eldest, you know? So so, sort of those responsibilities that are placed on her um, does not allow her to have, the right amount of maybe almost self-love doesn't allow her to be selfish enough, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to be able to look at yeah. herself and actually judge herself by herself. Yeah. You know, if so I, I
3: think it's a very um sorry to add to that actually, something else I was actually because there were so many things writing my sister girl I wasn't conscious of. Well something I was conscious of is that um Ayola God, said Ayola Correde actually rarely describes herself. And when she does, yeah. is in comparison to, to her mother. Ayala. But Ayola kind of, of will tell you, you know, she knows how beautiful, and, you know, Corrida will tell you when Ayala is half-naked, she'll tell you what she's wearing on, you know, mm-hmm. on a particular day. She'll tell you what bag she's carrying, but she doesn't focus a lot of that how attention you. on her own yeah.
2: self. So, yeah. yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and, and you, you said, the, only, the one time we got an impression as to what... um what Korede looked like was when she described her mother. Mm. And I thought it was a very fascinating thing because, you know, you're reading this book and the author is describing the character. And I'm like, okay, from whose point of view are you describing this character? And the the, the first time I had a a, a full picture of Korede was when Mm. the mom, she was describing her mom, the thick Mm. lips and the hips and all Mm. that. And I just got a sense that I got a sense that that's when I knew she was dark, that's when I knew she was she was all of those things. Mm. Um with that said, let's just look at this idea of, you know, um Koride, um sorry, the mom, um she had two daughters and Ayola was so beautiful that she just gave up trying to have more kids. <laughs> <Yeah>. And <laughs> and and I thought that was quite um progressive, <laughs> uh, <and> which made, <laughs> which made their, their, their father's behavior all the more shocking to me, uh, because one would assume that she, he has those two princesses uh, that he would guard and protect with his life, especially if it allowed, if he was the type of man that allowed his wife to decide not to have more kids, because this last one was just too beautiful. Um, I assumed that there would be more complications that led to that, obviously. But in, in your typical sparse prose style, you didn't give us more information beyond that. However, I want to talk about this, this issue of patriarchy and the stereotype of the cheating. Um, okay. I didn't like the man. But he spoke to so much that I've yeah. read and I've heard about Nigerian, uh, or especially Yoruba fathers, and I was wondering: mm-hmm. is this intentional? Because it's just, it's it's perhaps the most stereotypical part of your whole story. Every other thing mm-hmm. sort of like angles out of the ordinary and the, the the unique and the special. But this this man was just so standard. <laughs> In a sense, in terms of literature, or in terms of what we know, I, I don't know what you have to say about that. And is it is this something that you is this something that you think about in terms of patriarchy? And is it something that you've experienced? And yeah,
3: actually, Help funny enough, when uh, my dad read the story, um, at some okay. point he was like, I "Why, why is go the go dad there. so?" Yeah, you know, when <laughs> my dad read, so he was like, "Why is the dad so mean?" And he was like, "Why is that?" You know, and, you know, I, thought, I was like, oh, gosh. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the thing is that I was very, very fortunate to to have two parents who um, kind of were quite liberal, at least by Nigerian standards, they were very liberal. And, you know, um, I mean, they have a writer for their daughter, so, you know, they kind of They've been okay. They've been cool. Um, but I did see that some, like, I come across homes where, you know, the father would come home at night and everybody would disappear. Like, they'll go, the TV will turn off, go to their rooms, you know. And some of them actually weren't, like, didn't have terrible relationships with their father, but their father was also, like, and the mothers encouraged it, like, this fear. Like, the father, once the father steps into the house, you know, everything has to be, um, and sometimes even, um, but then there were some homes where the fathers were that strict and the mothers were also as afraid of their husbands as the kids were. So, I mean, I've seen it all in Nigeria. I've seen there's a range. Um, I think we probably don't do enough celebrating the fathers who who mm-hmm. were doing mm-hmm. it right, who were mm-hmm. getting it because, you know, they, they, they existed. They still do exist. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. you also have the, on the other end of the scale, you have the other type of father. Now, in writing this, to be honest, I didn't write it with the intention to attack the patriarchy or even to address it. You know, I, the father didn't actually even exist at the start of my story, but it got to a point where um, I realized that I needed um, I wanted Corridi and Ayala to experience trauma together because I didn't think it was enough. Yes, sisterhood is a, binds them in a way, but I, I felt like you know, these, what these girls are doing uh, is really terrible, you know. So I needed them to be broken, um, and I needed them to have shared trauma because I really shared trauma further binds people together, you know. And mm-hmm. since they were sisters, the easiest thing was that the shared trauma would take place in their home. So mm-hmm. that's kind of when the father was born in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. he was really an answer to a problem I was trying to address with. Mm-hmm. Um, in he my was life. a prop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, See, and yeah. I kind of, in his own, in my own way, I kind of, I would say I fell in love with him. But you know, because he looms so large in their minds, he started to loom mm-hmm. quite large in mine. You know, mm-hmm. because he has so much to answer for, and mm-hmm. he's so cruel. You know, and you know, in my mind, he's just this bully, and that's why, um, you know, to your question about, you know getting away with maybe maybe not having a, uh, a son. It might just be that he likes to be the center of his own universe. Like he mm-hmm. doesn't need mm-hmm. any male mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. in his space, you know, when he's kind yeah. of got everything on lockdown. So mm-hmm. um, I found the father quite interesting, like whatever, quite interesting to write, to be honest, and his obsession with mm-hmm. his knife and just the way he performs for guests, you know, so everybody yeah. out outside of them, will think that he's this great, fantastic guy. Mm-hmm. and But the people in the home know that he's really a tyrant, which, you know, was something
2: else I, I, I enjoyed doing. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. I, I, that insight of of being the center of att- attention and being the center of female attention is actually a very fascinating concept for me uh, because i didn't see it that way but it's there actually it really is there he mm-hmm. he, he is even the way his sister his twin sister relates to him you know it's this like a mm-hmm. life figure you know and he enjoys it and he revels in it and i can imagine that such a guy would have been totally not acceptable or Totally not that much of a great father to a son, <laughs> you know. In a sense, mm. not not bringing a, another male figure into that space would have been a bit too much to bear for the poor mother, <laughs> you know. Mm. I think she would be something much more than ambient, you know. So, but let's talk about the Noah space. Um, I know you know Laye. Uh, I've I've seen some uh, so you guys at, uh, at at festivals together, and. Um, Leo used to cause this whole, this interest in uh, crime fiction from West Africa, Nigeria as Sunshine Noah. I love it so much. And uh, what do you think about it? And this, uh, every time I hear Sunshine Noah, I don't, I don't like categories much, but I always think about also the rise of Nollywood, you know, and how mm. people see Nollywood and, and all that. Do you see some kind of a parallel in terms of how people are so interested in what is happening in, in the continent, and especially in Nigeria, what, especially also with your travels and the questions people are asking you, what do you, what do you think is responsible for this? Maybe.
3: Just why does Leia call it sunshine, Noah? I don't know.
2: I think that was what he explained. I think it's the sun, or maybe the tropicalness of it. Because I, I think um, <laughs> the Scandinavian.
3: It sounds so nice, like is this happy. I don't know, I'm just interested. <laughs> yes. I'll, I'll ask him <laughs> when, like, Sunshine Noah. It sounds very kind
2: of, it's an interesting. Uh, yeah.
3: Uh, like, description, I yeah, I, I, I
2: have I, to ask him. Yeah. I think it has to, it's when you contrast it with the Scandinavian Noah which is also a lot of snow and yeah, lots of, you know, like the Zijil Nesbo book and all <laughs> that. And then our, our, yeah, All the bad things
3: of, here happen in the lights, light, happen in the daytime, in the when light. the sun the is sun. shining. <laughs> <Yes.
2: That's what. laughs> exactly. You know, and so I think that is it. But what, what do you think? Why, why do you think this is happening now? And, you know, and what, what's the trend? Can you see what the trend is? Is it going to get as big as Nollywood? Is there hope? <laughs> I hope so.
3: We need the money. I hope it gets the big <laughs> money. Um, okay. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know. That's a big question. I think, but there are different reasons for it. For one thing, um, I believe that Africans and Black Americans are looking to consume their own content a lot more than maybe they were in the past like they're demanding their own content we want to watch movies where we're the lead characters we want to read books where where and and i think a lot of it as what people not only do they want to be or do we want to be the leads but we also don't want to be pigeonholed anymore we don't want to see just the same narrative of i mean and again there's value in that narrative but I mean, there's so much more to us mm-hmm. than the narratives that have been pushed thus far. Um, mm-hmm. And like, even for myself, coming across people who are just like, you know, there was a time so a woman thanked me and I was like, okay. she And she thanked me for, she was like, it was so refreshing to read a beautiful, curvy, read about a beautiful, curvy. Um, and she was referring to Ayola, you know, she was mm-hmm. like, I rarely come across a black woman described. So, you know, that, you know, this woman is beautiful and is, you know, and um, I thought, okay, you know, it was, it felt good to feel like, you know, I had done that. Um, Now there, there will also be other books that have as well, but maybe people haven't, I'm not aware of them or haven't really had access to them. Um, So I think that's one reason for the phenomenon. is just that, Black people are demanding it, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, we're such a massive community that it makes sense for the publishers to to publish it. Um, it's all about the money at the end of the day, really. So there's there's mm-hmm. that. Um, I don't know. And to be honest, I feel like Africa is a continent that people have had their eyes on for some time, um, and you know, I think there will be a lot of great things to come from Africa in, in the next few years. So it's actually really exciting. I mean, if you think about the way the music industry has exploded, um, you know, there was a time where people didn't used to play Nigerian music at parties. I remember because I was alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was a time people didn't used to play at all. Now I can travel to like, you know, wherever, Sweden, and hear a... Um, Nigerian, you know, hear Nigerian music and be like, okay, you know.
2: Um, so yeah. Yeah, I experienced that once. I, I went to the Maldives on holiday with my family, and it was this resort. And every night there was a party, and every night it was Peace Square. And every, mm-hmm. every, <laughs> every hotel night. staff, yeah, yeah, every hotel staff could sing each of these songs wow. word for word. You know, they do oh, wow. have nights where they actually have, they don't have nights where they actually have, um, what do you call it, a karaoke, right? The karaoke thing. And you are yeah. singing Nigerian songs. Like, it, it, it was very, <laughs> it was a proud moment for me. I've, I've always had a bit of a challenge with this whole um, African writing. What does it mean? What does African writing mean? You know, this award for African writing. And so one of the things that always excited me about my sister, the serial killer, is always this idea of that, the awards transcended African writing, the recognition transcended that that's that's almost semi-genre, so to speak. How does that make you feel, and does that speak to how you see writing? Do you see yourself as a Nigerian writer? Do you see yourself as an African writer, or do you see yourself as a writer?
3: I definitely, definitely, definitely see myself as just a writer. Um, okay, I would. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't even really like the, um, you know, when people, okay, let me not say I don't like it, but like, I I can only, you know, sometimes when people ask me questions about Africa or even Nigeria, you know, I'll tell you what I know, but I'm always very adamant about stressing that, you know, I can really only represent myself. Um, I don't, you know, like I remember telling someone once, I was like, when you asked me about what's happening in the North, like, it's like me, it's like you're here in London and I'm asking you about something that's going on in Scotland. You guys barely even go to Scotland. Like I can't, (laughs) you know, I've not even visited all the states in Nigeria. I can't, -hmm. I can't account for everything in Nigeria. I Mm -hmm. I hear about it on the news, same as everybody else. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so I think for me it's very very it's always been very important to me that i be identified as um, as an incorporate weight first and for you know first of all um, but um gosh I think, but the thing is also like you get what i said about there being so much is coming out of the continent like I want to be a part of that movement. Like I'm not going to, mm-hmm. distance, <laughs> I'm not going to distance myself from that movement. Um, mm-hmm. It'd be, you know, it'd be such a blessing to be named a, amongst, you know, some of these other fantastic um, um, African writers. And I've met so many of them that it's with pride that I would, you know, I'd hold my head up and say, yes, you know, I'm an African writer, I'm but African writer. yes. But there are the limitations <laughs> that come with it. And I think before, I, I, you know, before uh, that, you know, first of all, recognize the work for its own value, you know, Mm -hmm. recognize the work in its genre, recognize the work Mm -hmm. for what it's doing, and then, you know, everything else can come afterwards.
2: Okay, good. And um, we're wrapping up now. So I just want to wrap up with some short, short questions. I was so. I one of the things that I do when I pick up a book is read the acknowledgments first. I always read the acknowledgments first, you know, and I was so fascinating. And your first sentence in your acknowledgement is uh, I think I will quickly check. Uh, it says, I'm grateful first to God. And I always I thought that was very fascinating. Of course, you we know, in the Nollywood movies, it's everything is, you know, thanks to God at the end. God is the director and the producer of this movie, you know, but this is the first time in in, in a novel that I've seen a writer actually you know, call out their faith. And I just wanted to know, what's the role of your faith in your writing and how does it push your imagination and how does it free you and how does it limit or constrain you?
3: I don't know. I think both. I feel like sometimes it limits me and sometimes it frees me. Um, It limits me sometimes because I write some really dark content and there's a limit. um, Sometimes there's a limit I have to place on myself because for different reasons, one, I don't want to be, I don't want to bring anybody down. um, But you know, also sometimes I'm like, what's the value in what you're creating here? And I have to find Mm -hmm. the value even if it's dark, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but at the same time, and also because I write about people doing bad things. And like you said, I, I mostly do without judgment. Sometimes I I think about that. That is it all right that I'm not saying what I think people wrong. should yeah. do. You know, <laughs> like this is wrong, this is right. Um, so there is that. Those conversations I have to have with myself. Um, but it frees. It also frees me because I know that um, that he gave me this gift. And there were times before my sister's serial killer came out that I used to have like conversations with God. And I'd be like, look, he didn't give me this gift for no reason. People feel like when you've done a debut, like that's where you are, right? That's where you are born. That's when everything just happened. But there was a journey way before then. and mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. There were there were real struggle moments and there were disappointments and there were other things that happened before, you know, your debut comes out. So um, I do mean it when I say it because I, there were times where I thought, you know, should I maybe just set this, thing aside and focus on something else because I don't know Mm -hmm. if this is something I can
2: really do yeah good and so on that note a series of questions you're no longer you're still a fire round yes the fire round (laughs) you're still a debut what are you working on now when is it going to be out what can we look forward to Ooh, that's a tough one because I've worked on a lot of things since I've
3: ro- i worked on several shorts. Um, I think uh, The Last Tattoo for Max Sweeney's, which is out. Um, the School's Bridal for Audible. Um, Amazon, my short story for Amazon, Treasure um, in the Hush collection just came out. There's a novella coming out in February called The Baby is Mine. So wow. look out for that. So those are some yeah. things I've been working on. I'm not working on a okay. novel yet. I need to take a
2: bit of a break. Okay. And um, also um, What would you Somebody asked this question Said, um, Is there anything you would do differently Something you would have liked to tell a younger Oyinkan at Kingston I was pretty
3: consistent with my writing journey To be honest, I don't know if there's anything I would do differently um, Because I stayed on course To be honest mm-hmm. I, I've, I've dedicated everything to this whole writing thing So I don't think there's anything I would tell her, keep your head up Keep going, you're doing
2: good okay doing good. good okay and then another question came from somebody what will you continue doing uh a, a trait a habit a, an attitude that has served you well till now
3: okay do you know what this is the first thing that comes to mind i don't know if it's the best example but i don't let what people say to me um because uh people especially i think if you're a woman people are fond of telling you what they think you should do um mm-hmm and how they think you should do it. And I'm very polite, I will listen and then I'll go off and do the thing that um, makes the most sense Mm. to me, Um, you know, or i have prayed about it or whatever. But um, there were a lot of like naysayers when it came to this writing thing before My Sister the Serial Killer. um, I remember an uncle once told me that in order to, uh, since I insisted on being a writer, I would have to marry a rich man, um, find a rich man to marry. So, you know, but I, again, I don't even hold Like I'm cool with all these people that said all these things, but I know, I knew the path I was on. So I think that's, uh, that's a trait that's helped me that I never kind of,
2: you yeah, know, wavered. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Thank, thank you for you your so
3: time. I fun.
2: <laughs> and thank you for your warmth. And I please, 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 I hope that you Keep doing what your heart tells you to do. And I'm so grateful for all the successes that my serial killer has had. And I think that it's a lot coming up. I hear there's a movie, right? I mean, they've
3: optioned it, but I don't know if, when,
2: how they will make it. Okay, good. No problem. So I'm looking forward to your future successes and we wish you all the best. Thank you for making us proud. We're very oh, helpful. Your story has helped us to stay the course A lot of writers are so inspired by you, are inspired by your story. But most of all, thank you for giving us this. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Femi.
1: Thanks to oyinkan and to Femi for the fabulous chat. And if you want to learn more about noirage Crime Writing Festival, head over to the website noirage.co.uk. Don't forget, you can follow us on social media over on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. We're on Facebook and you can find out about all of our programmes and more about the book club that Flo's putting on by visiting the website nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk.
0: Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people to find it and have a listen. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll be back next week with a new episode.